God is a, a crystal clear image of what Jesus has done for us, not because we deserved it, uh, not because we were doing really well, but we were wandering from the fold of God. We were my fault not yours <laughs> let's try that better there we go that's gonna be way too loud sorry um we're gonna finish up acts chapter 13 this morning that's where we're going to be uh, i'm not going to read the entire thing uh, of what we're going to read this morning but i'm just going to start in acts chapter 13 beginning in verse 13 acts chapter 13 beginning in verse 13 it says this now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it challenges us, that it, it speaks to us, that, that, that through your word you are communicating with your people, God, that you didn't leave us here and abandon us just wondering what to do, wondering what our lives should look like, wondering how we should follow you, but you have instructed us from your word. I pray, Father, this morning that we would have ears that are ready to hear what it is that you have to say to us. Father, I pray that we would have a heart that, are, that is ready to apply what it is that you are saying to us this morning. God, I pray that we would leave here better because of our time spent in your word this morning. God, mold us, shape us into the image of Jesus. Cause us to be the church that you are calling us to be. We love you and praise you, and it is in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, I graduated uh, high school as salutatorian. Hold your applause. And, uh, and, and uh, our, one, one of the things you get to do, at least in my high school, a lot of high schools in Texas, I don't know how popular this is everywhere, but, but at least in my high school, a salutatorian gets a speech, right? So uh, at graduation, you get to come up, and the, the class president gives a speech, and then the salutatorian gives a speech, and then right after the salutatorian, the guy that was smarter than the salutatorian comes up and gives a speech, like immediately after. You know, it'd be like if the vice president gave a speech, and then the president came on right after him. Like, why? Uh, or I guess in this case, her. Like, why didn't you just get right, that, right to that guy? You know, like, why did you have to get the second place person up here? Um, but that's what I got to do, is I got to give a speech at graduation, and so... I got to stand before the crowd at NRG Stadium where the, where the Texans play and got to deliver this speech. And if you've been up, uh, to any high school graduations, you probably have heard the generic graduation speeches that, that students give when they get up on stage, right? It's usually something like, guys, we made it. Uh, we're on top of the world. We have succeeded and reached all of our goals and dreams in life. And, uh, and we just need to go out and change the world, right? It's just usually some very, a bunch of cliches jammed together into a four-minute speech. Uh, and thrown out at the audience. That's usually uh, most high school speeches. Occasionally, you'll get someone who takes it in a, 
in a radical direction. I was at a graduation one time and the salutatorian got up on stage and spoke for, for eight minutes about how he was better than everybody and how they could achieve the level of success that he'd achieved. And I'm like, dude, you didn't even get first place. Like you're the, <laughs> you're the salutatorian of high school. Um, there's another uh, graduation speech, uh, at, actually at my high school, a few years after I graduated, where they, uh, one of the speakers got up and just trashed the school <laughs> and their graduation speech. So, so that happens occasionally, someone will, t will commandeer this opportunity to have an open mic and just take the speech in a crazy direction, but usually it's pretty cliche. Uh, but what it, what it provides is a great opportunity to just get up there and to say something, right? You have a few minutes to communicate something to the graduating class. What is it that you want to communicate? What is the one message that you want to share to the people who are listening? Well, Paul and Barnabas and John, as we've seen, uh, as we saw last week, they left Antioch, the city of Antioch, as missionaries. They went out and they went on to the island of Crete. They proclaimed the gospel in the island of Crete. And now they have left the island of Crete. They've headed back to the mainland, and they've made their way. John has left them. It's not really important for our story today. It'll be important in about a month when we get to the a text that that relates to, but, um, but John has left them. So Paul and Barnabas have made their way to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. I don't know why it has the same name as the other Antioch that they left. I didn't make it up. Nobody asked me, but that's how, uh, that's how they named it. I guess they ran out of ideas. So they named it Antioch in Pisidia. That's where Paul and Barnabas have made their way and now they're standing in front of the synagogue, the, the, the Jewish area of worship. They're sitting in front, and the, the speakers, normally what would happen at a Jewish synagogue is that they would read from the Old Testament somewhere. They would read a passage, and then if there was a traveling speaker or a traveling rabbi, they would, they would give them an opportunity to speak. So now Paul and Barnabas have made their way to the synagogue, and the, they've read from the Old Testament, and then the leaders, the rulers of the synagogue have turned to Paul and Barnabas and said, if you have something to say, now is your opportunity to say it. Paul and Barnabas have one chance to give one message to the crowds gathered there in Antioch and Pisidia. What is it that they're going to say? You and I have an opportunity very similar to that of Paul and Barnabas. You and I have an opportunity with our lives to step up to the mic and to tell a message, to proclaim a story to people. Our lives are telling some type of message. Our lives are trying to influence other people in some way, one way or another. And we get one shot, one life, to proclaim some message to the people around us. What is it that we're going to proclaim? What message will we tell the people around us? I love animals. And it'd be really easy to organize my life around uh, trying to end animal abuse. And say, this is, this is the message that the world needs to hear, that we need to stop being mean to animals. And, and proclaiming that. It'd be really easy to do that. There are people uh, who, who organize their entire lives around climate activism, where the message that they're telling people is that they believe the world is getting warmer, that we're causing it, and this is what we need to do to fix it. And that's the message that's being proclaimed by people who organize their lives around climate activism. There are people who organize their lives around racial reconciliation, and the message that their lives are proclaiming is that our systems are unjust, um, that there's brokenness in our systems, and that they need to be fixed. Like That's the message their lives are proclaiming. There people, businessmen who spend their entire lives, organize everything just to get more money. And the message that they proclaim to the world around them is that money is the number one thing that you need to get. The money is the most important thing in this world. And if you have money, then you can enjoy the rest of your life. Then you can take vacations. Then you can retire early. Then you can get on with things. You just have to have money first. So the message 
that they proclaim is that money is the greatest good in the world. Our lives are telling some type of message. The way that we organize our lives, the things that our lives revolve around, say something to the world around us. And we get one life, one shot to proclaim some type of message to the world. What do we want that message to be? What should that message be? When Paul and Barnabas stepped up to the mic, what is the one message that they decided to share to the people in Antioch, Pisidia? Let's see, beginning in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until the Samuel, the prophet. So what Paul does when he steps up to the mic is he gives a brief Old Testament survey, like a quick overview of what the Old Testament uh, says. He says initially that God chose the people of Israel. That is a reference back to the book of Genesis, that God selected Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. You're going to be my people. Your descendants are going to be my people. And so God chose Abraham to make a nation out of him. So God chose the people of Israel back in the book of Genesis. We find out in the book of Exodus that Abraham had kids. They, his kids had kids. Their kids had kids. And by the time that the book of Exodus rolls around, they're, they're a huge, mighty nation of people, but they're enslaved to, the, uh, to Egypt. But God rescued them out of slavery. That's what the whole book of Exodus is about. God rescues them out of slavery and brings them to the land that he had promised them to inhabit. Then we fast forward to the book of Judges, uh, excuse me, the book of Joshua, where God allows Israel to step in and conquer the land, where he kicks out and, and, and destroys the nations who were there, who were wicked, who were fighting against God, uh, and the Israelites come in and they take the land. Then fast forward to the book of Judges where God has raised up judges to rule and to lead over Israel until the time of Samuel. Fast forward to the book of 1 Samuel. So what he's done in these few verses is just give this quick overview of what happened in the Old Testament. God called Israel as his people. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them into the land of Israel. And he provided them rulers to rule over them, lead them. Look with me in verse 21. He continues. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. That's the whole book of 1 Samuel, where Israel says, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. He gives them Saul. Saul didn't follow God, uh, so God rejected Saul. Look with me in verse 22. When God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So quick Old Testament survey, all leading up to David is on the throne in Israel. The book of 2 Samuel, also in the, uh, the book of First Chronicles, David is, is on the throne of Israel. He is leading the people of Israel. And this is the, the high watermark of the nation of Israel. Because on the throne over all of Israel is a king that loves the Lord. It's a king that is following after God. And so Israel is experiencing this time of, of blessing from the Lord. Because the nation of Israel is, is experiencing about as close as it can be to what it's like to be the kingdom of God. 
Because here they have a ruler on the throne who's following after the Lord. The nation of Israel is following after the Lord. And so the whole nation of Israel is experiencing the blessings of God. It's about as close as it can be to being the kingdom of God. Now, it's not perfect. David, in Scripture, is shown to have several flaws. So he's not perfect. The nation of Israel is not perfect. But you get a glimpse of just what it's like to be the kingdom of God. And they're experiencing all of these blessings and goodness from the Lord. The Bible tells us around the story of David, and this is what, this is what uh, Paul is hinting at. Around the story of David, the Bible tells us that God promised David, and he promised the nation of Israel, that there would be a king to sit on the throne forever. From the line of David, God would raise up someone who would sit on the throne of Israel and rule over the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And it would be the perfect kingdom of God. It wouldn't be this, this close estimate. It wouldn't be this, this glimpse into the kingdom of God. It would be the perfect kingdom of God when he raised up somebody out of the line of David to rule over his kingdom forever. And, and that's what the Jews are waiting for. When Paul and Barnabas get into the synagogue, the people that they're talking to, that's what they're waiting for. They are looking for a Messiah. They are looking for a king and a savior. Because they know that they're looking around and they see that Rome has conquered them and they are, they are entrapped under Roman rule and they're looking around saying, God, aren't we your people? Aren't we supposed to be the eternal kingdom of God? Aren't we supposed to have a ruler and a king to, to set us free, a savior for our people? And so they are waiting. They are looking and anxiously hoping for a Messiah. They can't wait to see a Messiah come and establish the eternal kingdom of God. They are waiting for it. And look with me at what Paul says in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, meaning of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul tells them, you guys are waiting for a Messiah from the line of David. You guys are waiting for someone to sit on the throne of God. You guys are waiting for someone to establish the eternal kingdom of God. Well, I'm here to tell you that he's come and his name is Jesus. Jesus came from the line of David. And he is the Savior, the Messiah, that we've been waiting for, just as God promised. He fulfilled his promises in Jesus. Uh, look with me, verse 24. Before his coming, before Jesus' coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul brings to mind to his audience this, this recent history of a guy named John. We know him as John the Baptist. Where John is going through Israel and he is proclaiming that the kingdom is coming, that the Messiah is on his way. And he's, he's urging his followers to repent, to be baptized, to, to wait, to be ready for the kingdom of God to come. And so people were saying, is this John, is, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And John tells them, no, I'm not the Messiah, but someone is coming after me, one who's greater than me. In fact, the, the New Testament tells us that John at one point, he looks at Jesus and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is pointing forward to Jesus saying, that guy is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the Savior that we've been anticipating. Verse 26. He continues, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by, their con- by, the- by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him be executed. So Paul points back to this Old Testament passage, specifically Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 and a lot of Old Testament passages are pointing to this this Messiah who's going to come, and he wasn't going to come as this, he wasn't just going to come as this triumphant king that they've been waiting for. Isaiah chapter 53 and, and other texts point forward to this Messiah who would suffer for his people. This Savior who would, who would give his life for the nation of Israel. This, people who would, this, this Savior who would die for his people and die to bring salvation. And so what Paul says is that when Jesus came on the scene, the religious rulers, the ones who should have immediately picked up on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the ones who should have worshipped him and followed him, they didn't believe him. Because they didn't understand the prophets, they didn't understand the Old Testament. They were looking for this king who would knock off Rome and instill an Israelite uh, monarchy. So they didn't understand the prophecy that a Messiah had to come and give his life for his people. And so instead of obeying him instead of following him, they rejected him. The Bible tells us that they, they, they accused him of blasphemy. And they brought him before the Romans and said, you need to put this guy to death. You need to kill this guy on a cross. And they did. And what Paul says is, they were ignorant of the scriptures, and because they rejected him, they in fact fulfilled the scriptures. It's because the religious leaders rejected Jesus that he was the suffering servant. It was because they rejected him that he gave his life for the people of Israel, that he died for our salvation. The Israelites rejected him, and he died on a cross, and his blood was poured out as the Savior of the world to provide hope and forgiveness for his people. But he doesn't end there. Verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So so Paul and Barnabas, they said, the story isn't over there. The story doesn't end with the death of Jesus because that's only part of the fulfillment. Jesus still has to be this king, this ruler, this Messiah, this leader over the the, the eternal kingdom of God in order to to be the Messiah. He can't be dead. (laughs) And so uh, what Paul says is three days later, after he was laid in a tomb, God raised him from the dead. He resurrected, and this is something that we celebrated just two weeks ago with Easter, that God raised Jesus from the dead. He brought him to eternal life, and it says that, that Jesus then appeared to, all, uh, to, to a bunch of his followers, several hundred at one point, where he, he showed them his scars, he, he, he showed them that he was alive, and now those followers were out in the world, witnesses to what they had seen. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died and rose again to bring about salvation for his people. Paul continues to make his case. He says in verse 32, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it has been written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So what 
Paul does is he quotes Psalm 2. And he shows that there's in the Bible, looking forward in Psalm chapter 2, looking forward to a guy who is the son of God coming to the world. We know that today is Jesus. He continues, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, uh, this is Isaiah, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalms uh, written by David, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now, the argument that Paul is making here is this, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So, so they're looking at this psalm that David wrote. And in one of the lines, David wrote that, that you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now, a lot of the Jews would have read that and said, this is talking about David. But Paul is saying, God did let David see corruption. David did decay. He's dead, and his, his corpse rotted, and his, his, he returned to dust. So it can't be about David. But in fact, as he, his quote of Isaiah says, that he gives to someone else, to a descendant of David, the holy and sure blessings of David. It's not about David. It's about one of his descendants, that somebody in the line of David will not see corruption. Somebody in the line of David will never decay. Somebody in the line of David will never die and spend forever dead. It's about Jesus. In order to fulfill these prophecies, in order to fulfill the Old Testament text, Jesus died on a cross for, and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. But he rose again three days later as our Messiah, as our ruler, as our king to establish the eternal kingdom of God because God would not let his Holy One see corruption. And God gave to Jesus the holy and sure blessings of David. We are part of the kingdom of God if we follow after Jesus because he is the Messiah, the ruler that was prophesied so long ago. It is by him that we receive the forgiveness of sins. It is by him that we enter into eternal life. It is by him that we receive the, the gift of adoption into the family of God and citizenship in his eternal kingdom. It says in verse 37, uh, again, verse 36 says that David fell asleep and saw corruption. Verse 37, but he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So this sermon ends with Paul getting right to the point. What does this matter? Why does it matter that the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus? What does it matter that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies? What does it matter that Jesus is the Messiah? It matters because through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is available for you. It matters that because of his blood, because of his death and his resurrection, you have the opportunity at eternal life. It matters because the grace of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus can free you from sin and death like no religion, no checking off boxes, no morality ever can. The Jews were very religious. They were trying to follow after God. They were checking off all of the boxes. They were doing everything right, but they could still never earn the, the love of God. They could still never earn the favor of God. They could still never work their way into the kingdom of God. They were trapped by sin and death. But because Jesus died 
for the forgiveness of your sins and rose again and conquered death, you could be freed from what the law never could free you from. You could be set free from something that morality and religion can never free you from. You could actually experience eternal life. That's why all of this matters. That's why this whole Old Testament survey matters. That's why all of these prophecies matter. Because Jesus is the Messiah who died for the forgiveness of your sins and died to set you free from sin and death. And his sermon ends with a good old-fashioned invitation. Verse 40. It says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And this is from Habakkuk chapter 1. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, he tells the, the, the audience, he says, do not be like this verse. He says, do not be like the people who, who have the gospel proclaimed to you. Do not be like the people who have told to you exactly what God is doing in the world, that he, he sent Jesus, that Jesus came and died for you and rose again for you. Do not be like the people who hear the message of the salvation, uh, who hear what God is doing and still don't believe it. He says, today you have the gospel proclaimed to you. Today, Paul is saying, I'm telling you exactly what God is doing in the world. Today, I'm telling you that the Messiah that you've been waiting for is here. Don't be like the people who still refuse to believe it. Even though they've seen it. Even though it's been told to them. Even though God has worked in a miraculous, mighty way to fulfill all of the prophecies in the Old Testament and Jesus. He says, don't be like the people that still don't believe it. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them another Sabbath. And after, meeting of the, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they get a, a wonderfully warm reception here at the end of the speech. Paul proclaims the good news of salvation in Jesus, and the, the Jews who were there say, yeah, we would, we'd like to hear more about this next week. Why don't you come back next week and tell us a little bit more about this? And then there is a smaller group of them that as they leave, a group of them follows after Paul and Barnabas and say, we want to know more about this now. And so they, they spend time with Paul and Barnabas learning and, and hearing, and Paul and Barnabas say, like, your, your close continue in the grace of God. Continue trusting in Jesus. Continue following after him. Don't go back to the law to try to earn the favor of God. Just trust in Jesus for salvation. So pretty good reception. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, so a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So a week later, this news has spread about this message that Paul and Barnabas have proclaimed. And now a large group of people in the city want to hear it. There's a group of Jews who want to hear it. But then now we also know that there are Gentiles that are coming that want to hear this message. Those who are not Jews, those who formerly never had partnership in the kingdom of God, those who never had ownership of the kingdom of God, they want to hear this message that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming. So a crowd of people have gathered together in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, more than likely the Jews there is referring to the religious leaders, not the, the whole group. Uh, entirely, but, but to the religious leaders. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So, out of jealousy, 
because they saw the crowds and they were thinking, hey, that, crowds don't gather for me. Uh, crowds don't gather for my message. The Gentiles aren't flocking to the doors to hear the messages that we're proclaiming. The crowds aren't gathering to, to hear what it is that we have to say. And so out of just pure jealousy, they see the crowds and they're yelling out, don't listen to this guy. Jesus isn't the Messiah. Jesus isn't the fulfillment of the prophecies. Do not listen to this guy. And the, the, the language of the, the New Testament says they are reviling Paul. Just a week ago, they were hearing the message. They were, they were praising God for it. They were excited to learn more. But now, out of jealousy, they're saying, don't listen to this guy. So Paul says this in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, if you, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul says, fine, if you as the Jews, you as the people who are supposed to be the people of God, you who are waiting for a Messiah, if you will not receive him, fine, I'm going to take him to the Gentiles. If you will not follow Jesus, that's fine. But the gospel message isn't just for you. And so I preached it to you first because you've been sitting there waiting your entire life for the Messiah. And now that I've told you that he's here, you're rejecting him. That's fine. I'm going to go take the message to the Gentiles. Because there are a group of people here who have never had the hope of eternal life, who have never had the hope of entering into the kingdom of God, and they are ready to hear and believe in Jesus. And Paul, and Paul quotes an Old Testament verse of them saying, the, the old, this is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that the message is going forth to the Gentiles. That isn't just for the Jews, but it's for the entire world that God has provided a way for the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So we see this beautiful picture here that, that Paul says, fine, the Jews don't want it. I'm going to take it to the Gentiles, or at least the religious leaders rejected it. So I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And they, they go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are like, yes, there's salvation. There's forgiveness and freedom from sins. I can be part of the kingdom of God. And they're rejoicing and celebrating the eternal life that is found in Jesus. They have hope and life now. It says the word of God is going forth throughout the region. What we see as a result of the gospel message being proclaimed to the people in Antioch and Pisidia is that eternal life is entering in. Hope and joy and rejoicing is occurring. And the word of God is going forth. Paul and Barnabas had one opportunity, one message that they could proclaim, and they could proclaim any message they wanted. They could have gone in there and they could have told the Jews, keep doing what you're doing. Keep waiting for that Messiah. Keep living religiously. Keep having those good morals and, and pushing for good morals in the lives of the people around you. Keep being good people. Because in the eyes of the world, they, they were doing really well. They were following after God. They were religious people. And Paul and Barnabas could have gone in there and said any message that they wanted. He could have gone in there with a very heartwarming message saying, you guys are good people, you guys are doing really well, just keep it up. But he didn't. He had one opportunity, one message, and he proclaimed the gospel. 
what we see is that the Gentiles around him began to place their faith in Jesus. Life change, eternal life change happened because he proclaimed the gospel. Verse 49, uh, verse 50. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. But the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. So this kind of conclusion to the story is we, uh, we see that the Jews eventually kick Paul and Barnabas out of the city. Like enough of this and they kick them out. And so Paul and Barnabas, they kind of shake off the, the dust of their feet. That's their way of saying like, all right, we're, we're done. We're going to move on. But notice that, that end, that verse 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. More than likely, this is a reference to the disciples who are there in the city who have just placed their faith in Jesus. And even though Paul and Barnabas are kicked out and persecuted, the disciples who are there because the message went forth in Antioch and Pisidia, because the gospel has gone forth, these people are rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit. Hope and life have been found in the city. They got one message and they chose to proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the gospel was the only message that could change people's eternities. The gospel is the only message with the power of salvation. And that's what I want us to see this morning. The gospel is the only message with the power of salvation. So prioritize that message. The gospel is the only message that can see people go from death to life. The gospel is the only message that can see people go from darkness to light. The gospel is the only message that will impact people for all of eternity. So while there are a lot of good messages that your life can proclaim, there is only one with the, sour, uh, with the power of salvation, and it's the gospel. So if you get one life to proclaim one message, what message should you proclaim? You should proclaim the gospel. The fact that there is hope and eternal life in Jesus. There are a lot of good messages you can proclaim. It is, it is a good message to, to, to spend your life and organize your life around ending animal abuse. That's a good message. It's a good message to, 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 to orient your life and organize your life around ending racial uh, discrimination. And that's a, those are good messages. It, it can be a, a good message to, to organize your life around conservative values and hoping to see them instilled in our community. Like, like those, are those are fine things. But none of those messages are going to change people for eternity. None of those messages have the power of eternal life. So our lives shouldn't be organized around these messages. Our lives shouldn't be organized around these good causes. Our lives need to be organized and wrapped around the gospel. We need to allow the gospel to impact everything that we do. Our lives need to be centered around the fact that there is salvation in Jesus. The one message that we need to hope that our neighbors and our friends and our family members come to know is that there is salvation available to them in Jesus. We, as the people of God, as citizens of the kingdom of God, will be a part of a kingdom one day which is perfect, that will have no abuse, that will have no oppression, that will have no injustice, that will have no immorality or brokenness. We will be part of a perfect kingdom. And so as we look forward to that today, as, as, as future citizens and present citizens of that kingdom, we're going to interact in the world in a really positive way. We're going to see these, these positive differences made. 
We're going we're gonna to see the kingdom of God collide with our broken world, but we're not going to bring the kingdom of God here in its, complete, in its fullness. So our goal, our message is not any of these good things, although those may be great byproducts of organizing your life around the gospel. But the one thing that our life needs to proclaim is that there is salvation in Jesus, that there is hope of eternal life, that your sins can be forgiven, and that death isn't the end for you, but that you can receive eternal life and citizenship in the kingdom of God and adoption into his family. If you get one life to proclaim one message, proclaim the gospel. Because that's the only message with the power of eternal life. Some of you here this morning can't proclaim the gospel until you receive it yourself. You can't tell the good news of salvation in Jesus until you experience the good news of salvation in Jesus. So as you take a look at your life, you see how your life is organized, you know that your life is not organized around the Lord. That the driving theme of your life, the message of your life, is something other than the fact that there is salvation in Jesus. Some of you have organized your life around money. And you are working as hard as you can to get your bank account as big as you can so that you can enjoy life because, because you want as much money as you possibly could get. And you want your money to work for you so that you can enjoy a uh, a great retirement. And that's, that is your sole ambition in life. If that's you this morning, you have the opportunity to enter into eternal life, to, to have your perspective shift, to, to grasp onto something that will matter forever and not just for a few decades. You have the opportunity to receive eternal life in Jesus. Whatever your cause is, whatever the, the message of your life is, if it, if it isn't the fact that there is salvation in Jesus. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus this morning, you can do that. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you, and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, and you want to receive forgiveness of your sins, you want to be set free from sin and death for the very first time, what I invite you to do is to just come up here. I'll be standing right here. As we sing, I invite you to come up. I'd love to pray with you for a second, and there are people that would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus and to place your faith in him. What message is your life proclaiming? What message are people hearing from your life as you go out from this building? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there is eternal life in Jesus. I thank you that all the promises that you made to the Israelites about, uh, about sending a Messiah, sending a, a Savior, that all the promises that you, that, you have, that you have sent, God, you have kept them all. And you fulfilled all of them in Jesus. That there is eternal life available for us because Jesus died on a cross and rose again from the grave. Thank you, Father, for the eternal life that is available to us through Jesus. I pray, Father, that if there's anybody here this morning who has never placed their faith in you, I pray, Father, today would be the day this morning would be the morning that they go from death to life, that they are set free from sin and death, and that they experience the power of the gospel. Father, I pray that we as a church would, would go out and proclaim a message of the gospel to the people that we see, that our lives would be centered and organized around one thing, and that's the fact that we have eternal life in Jesus and that other people can have it too. Father, we love you. 
We praise you. It's the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.